I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now, let's get started. Guys, a quick trigger warning. Today's episode does deal with themes of disordered eating and miscarriage. If you're going to find this too hard on your heart, please, my love, skip to the next ep. But if you have struggled, uh, particularly with eating disorders, I promise you that this is one of those stories that really give you hope. So today we're talking about body image. Yep, that big old can of worms, I'm cracking it open. And because there are so many worms in that can, we actually have three stories for you today instead of two. First up, I speak with New York food writer Hannah Howard, mum to two children. Pregnant food writer sounds like a rom-com cliche, right? Sadly not. Hannah actually spent her pregnancy grappling with an old eating disorder, so she tells us about that journey. Then we'll hear from Lee Coonan, a transgender man who's given birth to both of his sons with a third on the way. And despite being prepared for a fairly traumatic time of body dysmorphia, Coonan actually loved being pregnant. And finally, I speak to Sam Barakat, a businesswoman who founded a chain of beauty clinics and unexpectedly found herself at the center of a body image confessional. Clients were telling her all kinds of secrets about their body and she had to figure out what to do with that. So let's begin. Story one, Hungry for Perfection. Hannah Howard is a writer. My name is Hannah Howard. I'm 34 years old. I live in New Jersey. I spent most of my adult life in New York City and had a pandemic and pregnancy move out to this little town in New Jersey called Frenchtown. And I'm a writer and I mostly write about food, although these days I am writing a lot more about my experience with parenthood. I actually found Hannah online through an article she wrote earlier this year in Bon Appetit magazine titled, Learning to Reject Diet Culture, One Pregnancy at a Time. My recovery from my eating disorder was going so well, reads the first line. Then I got pregnant. Hannah, you see, has spent most of her adult life battling anorexia. And yet she's made her fame as a brilliant food writer It's a little bit mind-bending, so I'll let her explain. I do feel like I've always had a kind of tumultuous, challenging relationship with food, but there was always, I always loved food. Um, My mom is a great cook, and she also is someone, I mean, I don't blame anything on my mom. She was just living her life, also navigating this crazy diet culture world, but she was on a diet, off a diet, different sizes, always not loving her own body. Uh, to put it mildly, but also an amazing cook. So there was always like something amazingly delicious happening in the kitchen. She had these wonderful dinner parties. She would try new things. She started a catering company once in a while. So food always also felt like excitement. Uh, The sensory nature of it was just so appealing to me as it is to everybody. But something about it also felt appealing on almost like a spiritual level, like the connection that it inspired in people. And 
I loved it. But then at the same time, I feared it and it felt complicated, which it was. And I, I think, you know, both of these reasons led me to a career in food. I think it's like you might find a lot of alcoholics who work in the alcohol industry. Like it just kind of makes sense that we're drawn to things that we love, but that might also be kind of personal demons for us. Hannah reckons that her eating disorder started right back when she was a young girl, taller and a bit heavier than her classmates. I kind of knew in my bones from the time that I was young. I'm, I'm a tall person. Um, I always felt too big, too much. I was the first first girl in the class to need a bra. Um, I just kind of felt like there was something wrong with my body. And at the same time, I really, really loved food. And then right before I started university in New York City, where I'd always wanted to live, I had this vision of my new life in the city and my dream school and all of these things I had worked hard to achieve were paying off. But the one thing that was wrong was that in my vision, I was so thin. Um, and so, of course, there was nothing wrong with my body, but I believed that there was and went on this really restrictive diet that kind of got more and more restrictive until it became an anorexia diagnosis. Um, that first summer. And then I responded to this by binging my brains out and really hurting my body with food in a different way. Hannah says that this summer in New York kicked off a vicious cycle of binging and dieting that went on for the better part of a decade. It wasn't until she actually attended a eating disorder support group that things really began to click for her. I lived this way in this sort of extreme cycle of, you know, binging and then waking up this next morning just full of shame and physical and emotional agony, really, because I've really just like, I, I kind of think of it as a, a war against myself with food and then vowing that I was going to go on a diet and it was going to be different this time and it was going to be, you know, I was going to restrict harder and better and fix myself and then I would keep that up for days or weeks or sometimes only hours, you know, depending, and then just rinse and repeat. Hannah tells me exactly when she decided that enough was enough. It was about 10 years ago, so I was 24, and I, I just, I, I had one of these, like, brutal binges. I, I had this kind of terrible fight with a gigantic tray of cookies and I woke up in the morning and I felt so sick. And it was that all these things were going well in my life. I had a new job. I had a new apartment. I just broke up with a boyfriend that was such a good decision. And I was feeling really good about that. And yet I couldn't escape this, this cycle and this uh, self-loathing. And it was really a painful way to live. Very lonely. I didn't tell anyone. It was so shameful. At her lowest of lows, Hannah sought out an eating disorder support group and went along. My brain exploded. Like, I, I kind of heard people say out loud the things, my, my deepest, darkest secret things that I didn't even want to admit to myself. And it was terrifying. I was, I remember everyone would hold hands and I remember being self-conscious that my palms were really sweaty because I was scared. Um, 
and I thought it was weird and all of all I had lots of chatter about it. But a part of me was like, oh, this is this is kind of getting at something that feels like the core of it. And I really needed something that got into the core of like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And so this marks 10 years of my experience in recovery where I've like very slowly tried to repair this relationship with food. Hannah ends up in recovery and she's doing really well. She met her husband, they got married, and then they find out that she's pregnant. She's excited and very happy, but she's also very hungry. And all of these little triggers that she worked so hard to get under control start to creep back into her life. I think I was kind of, I was aware that pregnancy could be triggering and challenging for someone like me who has struggled with food for so many years. And I think it really brought up the kind of perfectionist side of me that can, I think, translate into eating disorder thoughts. Instead of trying to be as skinny as possible, I kind of felt I have to eat perfectly for this baby. I have to do be the best pregnant person. I have to, and I read all of these books, which don't necessarily help, uh, full of advice. Eat less processed foods, eat less sugar, you know, and then it just kind of translated in my brain as to these mental gymnastics at every meal of like, was it okay? And I felt really nauseous and I, all I wanted to eat was bagels. And um, is my baby going to have some kind of crazy deficiency because I'm just eating carbs and what's going to happen? And um, it, it was it was anxiety inducing for sure. For those listening who are not familiar with eating disorders, let me explain something to you. It's not just a competition with yourself about how little you can eat or how much you can purge. A lot of it is about rules and control, counting calories, hours between meals, counting sugar levels, carbohydrate levels, anything that gives you this sense of control. Hannah calls it mental gymnastics, and she's right, it's exhausting. So while Hannah knew that she wouldn't stop eating in the way that she had before, she instead channeled all of that obsession into making new rules. And anyone who's been pregnant knows that there are so many rules around what you can and cannot eat. Like this is a space just begging to trigger eating disorders. Let's think of it, you know, like no soft cheese, no raw meat, no oysters, no fresh salads from the supermarket, no seafood, and, you know, be really careful about how much tuna you eat. Hannah was juggling all of these rules with all of the anxious obsession of a new mom just trying to keep her baby safe. And then, really suddenly, Hannah's baby died. I kind of hate the word miscarriage, but I know that that's what people usually use. Um, I had just seen the um, baby's heartbeat for the first time on the sonogram and was feeling excited. Everything looked good. And then it just happened very suddenly and dramatically. I was at a wedding um, at a friend, a friend's wedding in the British countryside. I remember like just being... Um, devastated, scared, just a, a rush of, of awful feelings. Um, it was really one of the worst moments in my life. And I remember her giving me a hug and saying, 
it's nothing you did, nothing you, I don't know her exact words, but nothing you ate, nothing you, no way you moved, no, you know, it's not your fault, basically, is what she was telling me. And it was exactly what I needed to hear because, I, and I think that this is part of diet culture too, that you're, you know, it's, it's a kind of thread. If you're responsible for your body, um, then of course you're responsible for something bad happening inside of it. Hannah immediately blamed herself. She must have eaten the wrong thing or not enough or too much. Logic told her, no, that was crazy, that's impossible. But years of conditioning herself to give food all of this power really clouded her mind. Of course, that's not how it works. Um, Usually miscarriages happen. There's a lot of different reasons, but almost zero, very, very close to zero of them are related to anything you could eat. Um, It you know, it's usually a chromosomal chromosomal issue, which is nothing you can control. Um, and it's kind of the body's way of protecting protecting yourself because this is not going to be a viable thing. But in the moment, it just felt devastating. And um, yeah, and it was wrapped up in this in this in my thoughts for sure with thinking that I had done something wrong and that that's something and it makes sense too there's so little we have control over when it comes to our bodies but food is something we have control over in a way um so that was the first thing I went to it took Hannah time to mourn and to recover she threw herself back into the habits and practices she had learned to control her anorexia and just a few months later she was pregnant again It was different this time. Yeah, she was anxious and scared and holding the miscarriage is a terrible first experience of pregnancy, but she was working so hard and really managed to find beautiful moments of light. It was a terrible experience. It was a terrible thing. I I was almost shocked to how sad I felt. But in the like gigantic big picture scheme of things, I wouldn't have had my amazing daughter if I didn't go through this. Um, we got pregnant just a few months after with her, so it's it's wild the way like things kind of unfold. And I and I think it did give me a little bit of pers- uh, perspective of like, okay, this is out of my control. I just get to do my best one day at a time, which is so much easier said than done. Fast forward a couple of years and it's COVID. We're in the middle of the pandemic. Hannah falls pregnant again, this time with her son. They decide to leave pandemic-struck New York for a quiet life in Frenchtown, New Jersey. In November 2020, her son arrived, healthy and happy. Life with a newborn and a toddler was crazy. Like, super crazy. She's in this new house, routine is totally out the window, and she just has to kind of stare down these control demons in her head, trying their best to put rules around how she looks. I mean, I I still have hard moments, and I still, I had a moment um, after my son was born. He was born um, November 20th, so Thanksgiving was just a few days later, and we had a family gathering and we had some family pictures and I had this like old this is like an old eating disorder behavior that has been like so hard for me to shake I look at a picture of myself and my um heart just sinks I just feel awful about it um and I had that experience and it's like yeah of course I'm I'm recovering I had a a 
on uh, a C-section. I'm planning. I'm recovering from major surgery. I'm exhausted. My hormones are crazy. I'm adjusting to life with two little people that I'm in charge of. Like, there's just so much going on. So I feel like when things are hard, it makes sense that uh, feelings and behaviors around food or whatever it is that we struggle with kind of pop up. This morning I had this like moment that I was really hungry and I, I'm breastfeeding, you know, of course I'm hungry. And there's very little, there was like very little options in my house for breakfast. And there was oatmeal and people say too that oatmeal is good for breastfeeding. And I was like, I don't want to look at a bowl of oatmeal. I'm so bored of this. Please get this. Like I didn't want anything to do with it. And I just kind of like found, like ate some yogurt that I got for my daughter and like it was fine you know it's like um kind of putting things in their right sized places of like it's not the most beautiful amazing breakfast that I've ever had in my life but like I'll get to have breakfast again tomorrow and then hopefully I'll get to have a lot more breakfasts to come um and just that kind of like grace and lowering that perfectionist bar to like a more realistic bar of like, yeah, some meals are going to be amazing. And some meals are going to be like, you got to get something in your body and keep going with your day. Like Hannah, I've also been accompanied by disordered eating since my teenage years. I don't do this a lot, but for this story, I thought I'd share some of my journey alongside Hannah's. As a mum, I've been super triggered by the way this new life no longer has room for my eating disorder. It's probably a good thing, but all of these patterns that were part of my life for so long suddenly don't fit. Things like weekend binging, weekday restrictions, perfect calorie counted meals and crash diets. I just don't have time for it. And it's really required this surrender. Like Hannah says, just eat the damn yogurt and forget about it. And that's been really hard. Being pregnant for the first time for me was all-consuming. Every day I looked at my expanding body and felt nothing but panic. One of my worst moments in pregnancy um, actually happened quite late on, right when I was 30 weeks. So it's pretty standard behaviour in the hospital system, but I would have to get weighed. And at the start of my pregnancy, when I was really sick with morning sickness and throwing up a lot, which was also a massive trigger, um, I kept going in and they'd say, you're really underweight. And that felt great. It just really hit that praise kink that anyone with an eating disorder knows about. Um, but then something changed. Later on in my pregnancy, the nausea stopped. I had properly begun eating for two and my weight shot up as it should have, you know, like I was growing a baby and I was pretty much about to have it. Anyway, I had this super gruff midwife who I'd never met before and she sat me down and showed me this pamphlet about good foods and bad foods. She then pointed to this graph where my weight sat and she was telling me that I was overweight. And it's, it's kind of important that I was only 12 kilograms over my normal weight at that point in time. I was 30 weeks. Anyway, this set me off. I spiraled. I had a massive panic attack. Um, my husband, Julian, who was in the room, could totally see it unfolding like this slow motion car crash and stared down this midwife, but she just kept going. Um, and he ended up having to basically carry me down to the car park and we sat in the car for an hour and I just shook and howled and struggled for breath. I was failing. That's how I felt. All of my life, I had managed to control my weight and now I couldn't. I was being told I was out of control. Um, 
and that was that was something that the more I speak to mums during pregnancy, the more I realise this is super common. When I spoke to Hannah for this story, she also remembers those pregnancy weigh-ins as a massive struggle, even in her recovery. And she told me that even today, not pregnant, she refuses to discuss her weight. I have been asking for maybe five years to be weighed blindly. So I turn around on the scale. I'm not facing. I mean, this helps me so much because every doctor's visit, just the annual visits, you know, they always weigh you. And it would always just send me into like a tailspin of of thoughts. And, and right, if it was, if the number was down, that was good. If it was up, if it was bad. But really, like, there was no way to win. It was just, uh, someone told me that if your weight could be information and not ammunition, it was okay. And for me, it was always ammunition, no matter what it was. Um, it can't win. So I thought, okay, I don't need to know this number. It's not helping me. Um, so that was so amazing. But then in the middle, and I have been diligently doing this for years, and then in the middle of my pregnancy, I decided to switch care providers for a number of reasons. And um, I they just kind of set my electronic medical charts to me. And I actually opened them for kind of research as I was writing something about the experience. And I had been going to see these doctors for five or six years. And there it was every single visit, my weight, there it was. So I had, you know, that really set me into uh, some crazy thinking. And it wasn't just the medical staff that Hannah found herself having to manage through her pregnancy. It was friends and family and even strangers who would constantly be commenting on her body. Just in pregnancy, the other thing that I found triggering is that people just want to comment on your body in a way that I feel like in normal times, most people have a little bit more discretion. And then something about a pregnant woman gives people... they feel like they have license to just talk about your body. And so people would say, oh, you look small or, oh, you look big or, oh, you know, it was just all kinds of things. I had an aunt who even asked me, she's like, oh, how much weight did you gain? Like, what business is that of yours? And I don't even think she was coming from a bad place, but it just sort of becomes this like public fodder. During her most recent pregnancy, Hannah says that she actually had a bit of a watershed moment with her body. My whole life, I've hated my stomach. I've never had like a flat belly, you know. Um, It's always been a softer belly. And I have a, a friend of a friend who does amazing henna art. And we were just chatting and she's like, you know, my favorite thing to do is a pregnant belly. And I was like, oh, I never heard of that before. And, but I just thought it will be a fun thing to do. So I, I booked it. Uh, but I thought, you know, she said, let's do it towards the end of your pregnancy when you have a big pregnant belly to do. So I booked it far out. I didn't think about it. And then it was coming up and she said, I'm going to need like three hours of your day. And talk about being time poor. It was like three hours of my day. What is this? And it ended up being kind of this amazing healing activity. She spent three hours lovingly, beautifully, thoughtfully painting this part of my body that I spent my whole life trying to fix and change and just hating. I used to fantasize about, I mean, this is kind of grotesque, but I used to fantasize about like taking a knife and like cutting off my skin. Like that's how much I hated my body. And then just getting to like, 
give it this love in this new form and then to and then as she was doing it the baby was kind of like shifting and moving um it was really special it was really meaningful to me so that was kind of a, a win um well, I also, like you, though, in general, have been really shy about pictures because I don't love the way I look. And now I really want to remember even the even the really hard times. I want to remember it. So I think that is kind of a regret. I haven't I don't have as many pregnant pictures as I wish I did. But I'm glad I did the the belly appreciation. And those I took pictures of that. And that's really cool. And I feel like I'll treasure those. Now, listen, I have seen this photo and Hannah just looks so happy, like any glowing mom. It's so beautiful. It made me sad because I hated photos so much during my own pregnancy. I just never felt like the image matched how I felt. You know, I'd be sitting in our garden and the palm trees would be swaying and the sun was out and I was probably nude soaking up the sun my partner would come out and go, you're so beautiful right now and take a photo. And I think a big part of me thought I looked beautiful in that moment. But then I would look at the photograph and just spiral. I was disgusted by the way I looked. I felt enormous and ugly and resentful of the person that I thought I was going to be pregnant. And it's weird, you know, because I'd always assumed pregnancy would be this time of healing uh, where I would be just big and happy and healthy and love my stomach for the first time. And it just wasn't the case. I asked Hannah whether she was also disappointed that her pregnant experiences didn't kind of amount to a magic sprinkling of fairy dust to make her forget about her anorexia. I didn't, I feel like whether or not you're pregnant, you're still you. So unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, you have to carry around all of your your baggage with you. It doesn't magically disappear. So I didn't have that experience. But I did have a little, I you know, it's so funny. I kind of went into it with a more pessimistic. I just thought I'm someone who struggles with body image my whole life. This is going to be really hard. Like I, I was waiting for it to be really hard, and it, there were really hard moments for sure. And I didn't magically become like someone with no issues anymore. But I did sort of feel like people had said to me, you know, don't uh, don't focus so much on how your body looks. Think about what it does for you. You know, your legs carry you all around, and your arms give hugs. And it's like, okay, that sounds great. But to me, that was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that sounds nice, but I could not internalize that. Um, but there was something about like just sitting there thinking, like, oh my gosh, at this moment, I'm growing a person inside my body. It's so cool and bizarre and sci-fi and. Um, that did kind of make me more in awe of my body than I have ever been before. But it didn't make everything easy and perfect by any stretch. But it did make me think that my body was pretty amazing. Today, Hannah reckons she's in a pretty good place with her relationship with food and her body. I think my relationship with my body today is the most happy and healthy that it's ever been, which is a miracle. I definitely still have moments, you know, looking in pictures, tilting a certain way and being like, oh, um, you know, I can't say that I'm like perfectly satisfied at all times. It's just that I've come from I've come a really, really long way. And um, I do think I mean, I hope it's not a terrible cliche, but I um, 
just seeing that my body like did this amazing thing. It, it made two people and it's feeding one of them now. Hannah's found herself an awesome therapist and is in recovery. Same here. Those ghouls still linger around, you know, popping out at times of high stress, but mostly they stay in the closet. When I was pregnant, I painted a huge nude portrait of myself. It's about two metres by one and a half metres. And it stood in an easel on our veranda at the end of our hallway. So anyone coming to visit me during my pregnancy could just sort of see it there right at the end of the hallway. For someone who has struggled with an eating disorder and never even wore a bikini in front of most people, it was a totally weird move. Um, in the painting, brace yourself, I'm standing on a frangipani kind of birth of Venus style. It's pretty wacky. There's this Queenslander house behind me, the hills of our neighbourhood behind that, white picket fence at the bottom. It's a Freudian dream, really. But the thing is, you can see my extra weight. I've painted myself as a bigger person, bigger thighs, bum, boobs, my big pregnant stomach. And I'm kind of realising it was painted in this little golden halcyon moment of my pregnancy where I think I did rather like how I looked. Or maybe I just liked the idea of liking how I looked. Anyway, it feels kind of important to note that the only part of this painting I didn't finish was my face. I never painted a face on it. It's like I just couldn't match myself to this picture of a happy, healthy, blossoming, suburban mother. It just felt too weird that that was me. So I left it and when we moved, I wrapped it up in a blanket and put it into storage. And that's where it still is today. A rare moment of self-love parceled away for a time that I might feel strong enough to look at it again. Story two, just call me dad. Adjusting to your new body as a pregnant woman is a hurdle for the best of us. But what if you're a transgender man? Lee Coonan, or Coonan as he prefers to be called, is a trans dad of two, soon to be three, based in Brisbane, Australia. I sat down and spoke with Coonan about his experience of navigating one of the most heightened female experiences as a trans man and what effect that had on his identity. And you know what was really interesting? Coonan didn't have any issues with being a pregnant dad. Those issues actually came from everyone else. My name is Lee Coonan. Uh, I'm 40 and I work as a statistician for, um, for the government. At the time of recording, Coonan was 25 weeks pregnant. How are you feeling? How's it been going? Yeah, good. Like, I think I've, I've been lucky to have relatively easy pregnancies. I think even easy pregnancies are hard. (laughs) Everything, I had a normal amount of morning sickness and now I'm having a normal amount of uh, pain and discomfort and (laughs) um, associated with with, having... Another boy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, another boy. (laughs) He's pregnant with his third child, another boy. Uh, Ray is three and Bernie is one and a half. So that's going to make for three boys under the age of five to a single dad. 
He's a bit of a superhero, really. The uh, day he came into the studio, he had purple marker scribbles all over his legs. It was very cute. Uh, Karina and I riff about daycare germs and COVID lockdowns and sorebacks, but there's one key difference between Karunan and I. He actually really likes being pregnant. All pregnancy is is hard, um, but I guess uh, I guess for me it was a, it's been a satisfying experience, which is probably like it it wasn't it hasn't been traumatic, and I feel really fortunate um, that I can say that. Here's the thing: when I embarked on this story, I was sure I knew the shape of it. Trans man spends life with body dysmorphia, transitions, then has to undo decades of work to survive the terrible experience of pregnancy. And this really is the hidden nature of gender bias because the fact is I knew nothing. Because transmasculine pregnancies are not all traumatic. And as Krunen will explain, they can actually be totally awesome. There's things that I don't like how pregnancy has changed my body. I've I've got, you know, lifelong injuries from um, from pregnancies that, you know, uh, will be debilitating for for my life. Um, you put on weight in feminising ways, um, like your like any weight that goes on to your hips and and legs, typically like is a bit feminising. But then there's other parts of pregnancy that like uh, I kind of see as as masculinising as well, which kind of balances it out a bit. Coonan believes that pregnancy can actually be a super masculine experience. Probably the the biggest thing is having a prominent gut and then in in my case I don't have breasts. So like that's that's quite masculinizing. And then there's lots of other subtle things like having having a higher body um, temperature, getting more body hair, um, farting more increased libido. Hey, come on, ladies fart too. This was definitely my first experience of looking at pregnancy as a non-feminine experience. And I was a bit slow on the catch up. Kunin, on the other hand, had clearly arrived at this place of peace and acceptance of his own transmasculine pregnancy ages ago. And it was really cool to witness. Nothing phased him. I asked him what the journey was like to being this confident pregnant man in a society that's still so biased to seeing pregnancy as an inherently female experience. I've, I've, I've got a very supportive friendship group and community and family, um, so that, that really helps. And then I've got some coping mechanisms. For example, when I swim at the pool, I don't wear a top and I think I think people who don't know me probably just see me as a um, woman who's had a mastectomy and they don't say anything. And I know people look at me differently. Um, I'm happily ignorant a lot of the time because I think I'm really good at just just blocking it out. Blocking out other people's judgment was something Kroonan found himself practicing from a really young age. He's autistic and says that navigating social situations has been tricky since he was a kid. He was different to his peers and he really felt it keenly. Yeah, so growing up, like I guess I was a bit of a different kid. I think I haven't been diagnosed as autistic, but most of my friends accept that I am and I've, you know, I've had counsellors 
say that I am. I did start a formal process, but I didn't um, continue it. So I was a bit different. Uh, I grew up on a boat from when I was nine to to 14. Um, I didn't always appreciate it. Like as a, as a kid, you know, you feel like you're missing out on other things. But, but yeah, looking back, I think it was a really great childhood for me. So my, my brother and sister are eight and ten years older than me. Uh, so part of that was with, with, um, with them and part of it was on my own. And, yeah, so from when I was about nine, I started wearing um, boys' clothes. When I was about 14, I started experimenting a little bit with uh, wearing girls' clothes again. It didn't last very long. By the time Kroonan was an adult, he realised that he was identifying less as a lesbian and more as a trans man. When I was 21, I lived in Vancouver for a little while and met trans people and that's that's really when I started seriously thinking that that I was trans was yeah being being around trans people and then yeah when I was 27 I um, got a double mastectomy or chest re- reconstruction surgery. Coonan says that while he was really happy with the mastectomy in the end he was pretty uncertain in the lead up to it. As his transition journey continued, he realised more and more that passing as a male wasn't as important to him as it was to others in his trans community. I dabbled with taking testosterone, but yeah, for me, the getting the mastectomy was a really known outcome. Like, you know, you start off with breasts, then you don't have the breasts. Uh, people often, if they're trying to assess your gender, they'll often look at your chest to um, to try and work out what gender you are. So uh, it felt like, a, um, felt like a really known commodity with known outcomes. And then taking testosterone is, you know, like even for the short amount of time that I took it, pe- like I, got st- I started to be treated differently, you know, my relationships with friends. Like I could just feel there was a, a difference and... There were changes to my face that were happening that, you know, you can't, uh, yeah. So like they, they're, they're just really global changes that you, I felt really out of control. Coonan wasn't enjoying these changes the way he had anticipated. You know, for a lot of people taking testosterone um, is really important and passing is really important. Um, but for me, um, it really rocked my sense of self and... Um, it wasn't important to me to pass. Like I, I decided to not continue taking testosterone and um, yeah, made peace with that I wasn't going to pass most of the time, and that I'd changed my body enough to align with my gender identity. Like I was happy for that to be the end of my physical transformation. Kuna decided about five years ago that he wanted to be a dad. He had a partner at the time, but they spoke pretty openly and the fact that they didn't want to have kids together. So Coonan was pretty settled in the idea of doing it alone. And he did. With donor sperm, he fell pregnant with Bernie and then a little bit later along came Ray. And as I mentioned earlier, Coonan's now pregnant with a third baby, another boy. I asked Coonan whether he found pregnancy to be a disconnecting time with his body. Um, like, did watching it kind of expand into this female state, was that challenging to how he saw himself? 
I I think I continued to feel connected. If I looked at if I looked at my bigger hips, I'd go, "Oh, that's not me." And if I looked at my big gut, I'd go, "Oh, that's me." <laughs> and then and then you know, I just try not to look at my hips. <laughs> I just tried not to think about the things that didn't make me feel good. And um, and yeah, like I like I liked the feeling of feeling Ray um, kick inside me, and I liked the feeling of looking pregnant like I liked the pe- the feeling of people knowing that I was pregnant and being excited for me or we- and with me. But as excited as he was, Coonan found that our medical and legal institutions are just not made for people who don't tick the boxes of white, hetero, able-bodied and female identifying. I should mention here that Coonan did sing the praises of his midwifery team. They were great, he says. I usually don't say anything until gender comes up. Um, and then if it's if it's someone that I'm not going to see again, I I usually don't say anything or if it's someone who I'm establishing a relationship with, then I just say whatever's relevant to that situation for a lot of um, medical practitioners now, like they're quite good like their response is quite you know matter of fact of like oh sorry you're male I'll put that I'll I'll change that and they're pretty good they like they're not they're not always good at like changing all their language they're in after but they're I guess that's the most important thing is that they're respectful and um don't make a big deal out of it my midwife was very good she did use gender affirming language a lot of the time and if she made a mistake she would just correct it um without any um fuss oh, and you know like it's birth there's just a lot of talk about wombs and vaginas and breastfeeding and heaps of other female anatomy i mean like what was that like so like one of my strategies was to make jokes so the midwife would talk about a a natural vaginal delivery and I said oh it's a natural penis delivery and and she'd and she started using that terminology just like it was a joke it was a light way to kind of to like get address the really gendered language well my midwife was really good the other midwives were terrible like they would use the word women and woman and mother all all the time. But for Coonan, being misgendered in the hospital was just the start of his journey to being recognised not only as a man, but as a father. Very quickly, he went from being blissful new dad to being smack bang in the middle of hugely upsetting red tape. I had a water birth and it, um, yeah, to hold to hold them for, you know, that, that first half an hour in the bath where you just cuddle the baby was really amazing, which is very much just me, my mum, the midwife and my new baby. Um, And then very soon after that, you have to fill out a form that has mother written on it and the midwife says, I'm sorry, but that's what it says. Like it's part of the legislation and that document goes to births, deaths and marriages. And Yep, that's right. Coonan was legally not allowed to be recognised as the father of his baby. First of all, like I logged on to fill in the birth registration application online. It basically wouldn't go forwards unless I identified myself as mother. And um, I guess that's one of my 
that's one of my boundaries is other people can misgender me all they like, but I'm not going to misgender myself. So, so with this brand new baby, I had to go um, into the city, into the births, deaths and marriages office and submit the form um, in person. So I said that I'm the father and they like took a while and got a manager and um, said that basically that they would, would have to review it. Like that, that whole process is horrible and um, yeah, it just feels humiliating and really exposing and then having to submit yourself to this bureaucracy that's going to decide whether you have this piece of paper that's really critical to doing anything for your child. This whole process makes my blood boil. Coonan, as you can hear, doesn't get too worked up over much, but hearing him say he felt humiliated was heartbreaking. So after it was a couple of months, I think, I got a letter saying that they'd considered my application to be recognised as father on the birth certificate, but um, under the Births, Deaths and Marriages Act that it wasn't possible, um, that I was considered mother. And I told my friend, and she just happens to volunteer for the LGBTI legal service, and she's like, I'll represent you. And so began a long and continuing, I should add, battle over a word, one very important word, father. Coonan and his amazing pro bono lawyer, Matilda, shout out to Matilda, have been escalating the case and recently Coonan was granted a meeting with the big guns. We had a meeting with the head of births, deaths and marriages. Wow, like of Australia. Oh, of Queensland. Of Queensland. <laughs> Pretty um, big meeting to have. Mm. What was their attitude when you spoke to them? He was very nice but um, said that his hands were tied by the legislation. And then, yeah, we did we did go to court. It was virtual. And the opposing lawyers, like, were, you know, helpful in lots of ways. Like, they weren't, they weren't mean-spirited at, at all, um, but they were... So who the, were they representing? The Crown. The Crown. Imagine. Imagine standing and pleading your case to be probably recognised as a father against the Crown. Yeah, it feels, it feels terrible. Like, it feels terrible. I felt very supported by my friend. The, yeah, she also had a barrister who came on kind of later in the piece to, to argue the case in court. Basically, our interpretation of the Births, Deaths and Marriages Act was that I could be considered father under it. Um, but we, we were unsuccessful in the end. And yeah, it, like it, it feels humiliating. It feels humiliating going to the daycare centre with the boys' births certificates and saying, this says mother, but I'm actually their father. And, you know, it just feels humiliating to have to explain that and and to kind of be at the whim of the daycare as as to whether they're going to accept what I say or or kind of go with you know it just it makes me feel very powerless I remember in 2007 I would have been 19 18 19 I saw American trans man Thomas Beatty on Oprah he was pregnant you guys probably remember uh, his famous magazine cover. The media scrutiny was wild. 
Barbara Walters called images of his pregnant belly disturbing and the Guinness World Records awarded him the title of world's first pregnant man. It was a cruel circus show and Beatty endured it to try, I suppose, and break down the walls of this gender normative behaviour and how we understand pregnancy. And what he did worked. In the years since, transmasculine pregnancies have blossomed as the transgender experience finally starts to wiggle its way into mainstream consciousness, the option for trans men to carry and birth their own children has only become more popular. Advocates like UK dad Freddie McConnell, who starred in the documentary Seahorse, are shining the spotlight on the experience. But this is still where we're at, you know, telling trans men that they're breaking the rules, that according to the law, they are still women, they are mothers. And that is wrong. Looking ahead, and Cronin says the best he can do is try and lead by example for his community. He never saw himself becoming an advocate for transmasculine pregnancies, but he kind of has. And I feel like this calm confidence he exudes about the whole experience must be really reassuring for others in the same boat. I try and promote that with my friends who are who are considering having children and are, you know, genderqueer or trans. It is so different for people, though. Like, I'm in, I'm in an online community and there was one um, man who is preparing to, to try to conceive and, um, like, he's in such an awful state at the moment. Like, he's gone off testosterone in order to do the egg pickup and then getting such severe dysmorphia at the moment that that they're feeling really repelled by their body and and then they're like having struggles at work while it was like generally a positive experience for me like I realize it can be really traumatic. By the end of our interview one thing was abundantly clear to me for Coonan he loved his pregnant body loved it he loved being pregnant too Fear and confusion didn't manifest as an identity crisis from within, but a red tape crisis from outside. The hospital, the court, institutions that didn't even know his name or his kids or how they lived as a family, they were the ones yielding the power to determine who Kunin was. This episode is about body image, right? And here we have this really healthy and happy man who, compared to others, doesn't have any issues with his body. Like, he really, really doesn't. But seems to have to keep proving that as he fights to be recognised for who he really is. Did you think at the start of this journey you would become an advocate? Or did you think when you were going to have children it would be you as a dad living in the burbs, leading a quiet life? Well, I mean, I'm... I, I am a squeaky wheel. If something affects me, I try to kind of rally a bit of support from, you know, my my work colleagues or my union or friends to try and change it. Yeah, I guess, yeah, you pick your battles a bit. But, yeah, no, I wasn't going to just cop being called mum, that's for sure. Story three, the unexpected therapist. Hey, so um, fun fact, 
Did you know that there's an actual phenomenon called the hairdresser therapist? Yes. Yes, there is. Stacey Page wrote a thesis on it for the University of Adelaide in 2019. And it basically points to this weird thing that happens when we're in close physical proximity with someone like a hairdresser or a beauty therapist and get this sudden urge to tell them all of the intimate details of our lives. Like I have an actual therapist, someone I pay really good money to listen to my problems. But like if a massage therapist says, oh, wow, the muscles in your neck are really tight. Are you stressed? You better believe that I'm launching into a 40-minute soliloquy on my mental health. And no one knows this better than Sydney businesswoman Sam Barakat. Hi, I'm Samantha. I'm the CEO of Body Catalyst. I turned 40 this year and I live on the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Now, full disclosure, Body Catalyst are the show's sponsor, so we're not trying to sneak one in on you. But when I first met Sam and, you know, we were chatting about herself and the clinics, I recognised that there was actually a real story. Uh, Sam is at ground zero of body image conversations, day in, day out. And I thought, who better to talk to when it came to a nationwide temperature check on how we see our bodies? Body Catalyst are a chain of body-shaping wellness clinics. Through a bunch of high-tech machinery, they work with women and men to lose fat, treat cellulite, tighten loose skin, and reduce wrinkles, basically. They're very likable. Um, you know, it's easy to go, oh, shouldn't worry about cellulite, shouldn't worry about loose skin. But, you know, we do. Um, and I think that they get the fact that we live in this seriously unhealthy, image-obsessed society. They talk about it a lot, actually, as a brand. Um, but they also know that the reality is people do want to change these things sometimes and they want to make sure it's done in a safe way. Sam reckons she got into this whole industry kind of by accident. So I have a health science background and I was getting married and when you get married you start to look at all aspects of your life and decide what it is that you want to do. Um, I was working in the corporate world at that time and decided that if I was to have a baby, would I want to come back to the corporate world? And um, I thought, no, of course not. So I started a business, as you do. Um, and at the time, so this was going back eight years ago, I was reading a health journal that talked about new technology called um, cryolipolysis, or more commonly known as fat freezing. At first, Sam made herself the guinea pig. It was actually, I didn't even have a room at the time. I was practicing out the front of my house. I was in a terrace at the time um, that had sort of three joining rooms and I would sit at the front of this room in a terrace, literally with a mirror in front of me. And as you said, a big machine putting it on myself, <laughs> giving myself treatments, taking it off. It was very awkward. Um, but yeah, quite quite funny when I look at look at it now. Long story short, it worked. Like, it actually worked. Sam was converted and she decided to take the leap. Her first clinic was a rented room in Bondi. First up, she says her goal was to make sure that the machine really worked on other people. So I did. I literally bought a machine, put myself in a room, in a beauty room, which I rented off an existing clinic and started giving treatments just to ascertain what is this business? You know, do the clients want it? What um, results are they getting? What value are they getting from the company? And very early on, I learned that 
Um, when clients started to get um, results, they started to um, have a spring in their step and they were a lot happier and they'd start to change aspects of their life outside of their clinic. So it had a real positive and knock-on effect. Now, I kind of want to address something here. We're at this strange intersection of history where discussing weight loss is an absolute bloody minefield. So we get it. Diet culture and weight loss culture is toxic and has caused massive damage. But where does it leave people, particularly women, who find losing weight to be a good experience? You know, like maybe it's five kilograms, maybe it's 50 kilograms, whatever it is. The point is that for some people, it does actually mean a healthier life and more confidence, um, a new appreciation for their physical abilities. So I don't know, do we just not talk about it? Because that doesn't seem right either. I'm not advocating for anyone to lose weight in order to fit a stereotype. I'm not advocating for anyone to lose weight in the search for happiness. But if introducing healthy habits does mean you lose weight and you feel better about yourself, then guys, I am here for it. And that's the stance that we are taking on our show. Sam has a similar kind of outlook. She's really careful about the way she talks about this sort of thing. Growing up as an athlete really drove home for her how toxic weight loss culture can be in Western society. Oh, look, growing up... What... I play, I've played a lot of elite sports and I think most females can attest to this. Every time they look into the mirror, they don't look into the mirror and go, oh, I like my tummy, oh, I love my legs. They say, I hate my face, I hate my legs, I hate my breasts, whatever it is. We never look in the mirror and actually praise a part of our body. We berate a, a part of our body. And so that that is actually one of the key reasons why I started this business. Um, I mentioned I play a lot of elite sports, or I used to, not anymore, a bit old for that. Um, but I used to play a, little, a lot of elite sports and you'd look at these beautiful women in the change rooms looking at themselves in the mirror and, you know, touching touching themselves um, or grabbing fat that you just couldn't see and, and complaining about it. And you think, what are you looking at? But it also made me realise that everyone does look at themselves in a very different way in the mirror. So starting Body Colourist was a way to help people feel better about themselves. And while this was a contributing factor to starting the business, not even Sam could have anticipated how central it would become. I suppose it's like going to your hairdresser before you know it. You're popping the champagne or you're talking about stuff that you would never have thought of. You would divulge to anyone, let alone a stranger. But I suppose that is also the attractiveness of it, that they are a stranger. They don't know you. They don't know anyone in your life. So it actually has been one of the unintended consequences, but the best thing about starting Body Colours, that you really get to know these people and their intimate stories. Um which is great. But the flip side of that is they really do open up. And the most amazing thing is you help them transform. You really do help them transform, change their way of thinking, or more importantly, help them feel better about themselves. I asked Sam if she remembers the first client who opened up to her in those early Bondi days. But actually what uh, what disturbed me the most was with these stories, it never was a positive story. It was always like the, the one that comes to mind was a lady who hadn't had sex with her partner for over two years because of the way that she looked, which was just so depressing. And I asked her why she was here 
And she opened up straight away and said, I haven't had sex in two years because I don't like the way my body is. And, you know, I, I really just wanted to cry. I, I just felt so sorry for her that this, you know, the way she felt about her body had prevented her from having sex. She did try sex once after having the baby, but it hurt. And a lot of females, when they hurt, um, when sex is, is sore for them, it's because they've got weak pelvic floor muscles. We worked with her for a good three, four, five months. This new sort of transformational chair that we have that you sit on. So when you sit on this chair, effectively the whole point of it is it builds your, well, it stimulates and contracts your pelvic floor muscles. And after 10 sessions on that, you know, I said to her, how are you feeling about yourself? Because this is coming to the end of her journey. She's like, I honestly, when I walk out, I'm feeling like a model. And so I said, do you think, you know, you've got enough confidence now to go and, and be with your partner? And she said, I do. And then when I saw her a week after, she was literally in tears because not only did she feel great about herself, but she, it wasn't sore. And I think that's the most transformational thing, you know. Yes, looking obviously is a big thing, but the fact that she could enjoy sex without being sore anymore was um, what stuck with me the most. The things that come up in her clinics are always the same, says Sam. The themes are very similar. I hate my tummy. My tummy's too big. My tummy's too saggy. My skin's not tight enough. Um, I pee myself. You know, that, that's been the biggest one, actually. The silent suffering that we've learnt that women go through postpartum, they feel it's just ordinary and natural. I have a baby, it's therefore common that I'm going to leak. It's therefore common that if I cough, sneeze, walk, run, jump, I will leak. And that is so debilitating for so many women, yet it's what they feel is the norm. And it's not. It's absolutely not. Since starting Body Catalyst, hundreds of thousands of clients have walked through her many clinics. But there's one story in particular that has really stuck with Sam. This lady had three beautiful kids. She'd split from her partner a year and a half ago. You know, her kids were a little bit older, between the age of 8 and 15. So she had been suffering, really, for 8 to 15 years with the way that she felt about herself. What compounded all of this was she um, had realised her husband was cheating on her, he'd had a mistress, and she found this because she found the bikini that he'd bought for her. Now, this lady hadn't lost the weight or her full amount of weight that she wanted to um, after having her children, so she definitely wasn't feeling good about it herself, would never jump into a bikini, um, and now effectively had had her husband walk out on her. So all of this had sort of happened, so she came in, and again, you know, went through, how can we help you? What are you hoping to achieve? And, and she was like, I just want to shift a little bit of the fat. I just want to tighten a little bit of the skin. I actually just want to look good in a bikini. She hadn't been able to exercise properly for such a long time because she was still suffering from abdominal separation. She went from four centimeters down to one centimeter in terms of separation. Uh, we shifted the fat, we tightened the skin, she started exercising, she ended up dropping about 15 kilos and went and bought herself a bikini, which was just phenomenal. But the icing on the cake, I think, was she came in probably six months after she'd started with us and three months after she'd bought the bikini and said, my husband wants me back. 
you know, and that was just so lovely. Not that she did it for him. It was always for herself, but it was just great that she, you know, took her power back, um, felt empowered, um, got what she wanted, and as a result of that, you know, was able to sort of lure the husband back, which she didn't take him back. Like the really fascinating part, the part that really gets to me is that despite these fully transformational experiences, Sam's customers are kind of embarrassed by it. Some to the point that they're actually hiding from their partners that they've even visited the salon. And we have a lot of females coming in and um, either asking to split their payments or pay in different ways, be it afterpay, um, you know, zip pay, credit card, direct debit. And when you ask why, it's because I haven't told my husband, I don't want him to know I'm doing this. And you're like, why? Why don't you want your husband to know that you're doing something for yourself that's going to make you feel better? And a lot of times it's, they're not going to understand, you know, they, they don't think there's anything wrong with me. Like, what? So although the husbands are being quite supportive by, you know, telling them that they look great, really the woman still does not feel, like the, they don't feel comfortable. And so they hide it from their husbands and they hide it for twofold. One, they know if they do it, they, their husbands will be like, why are you doing this? You're beautiful as it is, which is excellent. Well done. Tick to the husbands for saying that. But it still doesn't make the wife feel better. They, they want a bit more. They, they want to feel sexy. They want to feel like they're being desired um, as opposed to just, you look beautiful, honey, or you're fine, or you look great, or you don't need it. So it's, it's going for that. It was actually really interesting in our interview. Um, Sam definitely clocked me kind of recoiling a little at this moment. I, I feel challenged, okay? I feel so tired by this. The thought of adding a new job onto the roster, of looking sexy for my partner, makes me feel, quite frankly, overwhelmed. But then I think about all the stuff I've done postpartum that did actually make me feel better, such as joining the gym. Uh, getting my hair done, getting Botox. I did have this weird guilt about it. Some feeling that I didn't really want to admit that I'd done these superficial things, that that made me a superficial person. When I asked Sam about this, she actually really fired up. It absolutely infuriates me that uh, media these days, all forms of media, increasing media, in particular social media, ask women or make... Um, present to women to look a certain way and yet then they're vilified for taking steps to try and look that way. It's like you can't win. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of women these days are just, there's an uprising going, if I want to feel better about myself, I can. You know, we've got a couple of taglines that have all literally come from this exact thing. One of our taglines is, um, my body is my business. As in, I'll do what I want. I actually don't care what you think. If I want to feel better about myself, I'll do that. I'm not hurting you. I will do that. Do what you want to do to make yourself feel better. Don't feel like you have to get the permission. You know, if it makes you feel good, do it. As the business grew and the voices of her clients grew louder, Sam felt like she couldn't ignore this tsunami of stories any longer. All day, every day, they were hearing the same stuff. I don't have sex, I hate my body, no one is going to want me, birth and pregnancy ruined me. So Sam and her team got to work. 
They're currently rolling out one of the biggest private surveys in Australia, gathering information about how parents are interacting with their bodies. And you know what? The results gave me really, really heavy boots. We ran a poll recently in um, Australia and New Zealand with over 9,000 respondents. Um, You know, 80% of the respondents said they the body concerns they have about their body distracts them from enjoying sex. You know, 70% of respondents said that a negative body image has affected their relationship with their partners. 77% put off having sex because of their body. And 70% of respondents said they were self-conscious about their body whilst having sex. And that's just on the topic of sex. Sam says that some of the more worrying results are around post-birth pain and trauma. In particular, as I you know, mentioned previously with the incontinence or even bladder leakage, 99% of females just think that that's the way it's going to be, that they're going to have a ba- uh, give birth and end up with some form of bladder leakage. It's just... Uh, mind-boggling, really, that they they think that. Body Catalyst are now starting to share some of these insights via their social media, and it's strangely comforting, really, to know how many other people feel the same way. And also that there's people out to help you. Hearing Sam talk feels like a bit of a revelation. My earliest memories of beauty therapists are not too good. In fact, it was my first introduction to this concept of fixing myself, right? I was always being told by beauty therapists that my eyebrows were too fair or too thin or my eyelashes were too short or that I'd look better with a tan or that, you know, most women got Brazilian waxes. Why wasn't I? My hair was too curly, so I cut it off. Short hair then became uncool, so I grew it back. Problems were constantly being presented and then fixed and then critiqued all over again. It was like this cycle that I just couldn't break out of. Something about Sam and her work feels different. They're not telling people that there's something wrong with them. They're opening up a space that feels safe for clients to admit when they feel like something is wrong. And it's so rarely aesthetic. So rarely aesthetic. It's deeper than that. It's about liking who you are. And if a saggy tummy or peeing when you laugh is a roadblock, then fuck it. Change it up. Because as Sam says, they're not your solution. They're just the catalyst. Hey, thank you for listening. That was great. I love that we got a bit of a Whitman's sampler of body image stories, you know, like we had... A lady that didn't like her body but learned to. And a man that did like his body but had to prove it. And a woman who found herself at ground zero of many bodies. All of them trying to find their way home. So to wrap up, this is going to sound so trite and you're allowed to roll your eyes, but I'm saying it anyway. A daily reminder that you are beautiful. You are perfect. You're not defined by saggy tummies or skinny arms or weird moles. You should get that checked, though. You are more than that. As always, big thank you to my brilliant guests, to Hannah Howard, who you can read more from in her new book, Plenty, A Memoir of Food and Family, to Lee Cronin, who is still fighting the good fight in the courts to be recognised as father to his sons, and of course to Sam Barakat, resident expert in body image complaints and queen of pelvic floor health advocacy. 
As always, I've loved hanging out. And remember, it is one small story of a parent, but it is one huge tale of parent kind. I'm your host, Maggie Kelly, and I can't wait to be back with you soon. Goodbye. This has been a Super Real production. Parent Kind is produced by Julian Morgans, and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders, and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell, and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.